Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Over the course of the past century, many scholars have published historical biographies of the Buddha, attempting to present a simplified chronological narrative. But according to Bernard Four, these attempts to uncover the historical Buddha neglect the rich literary, mythological, and ritual elements of the story. Four, a professor of Japanese religion at Columbia University, believes that the Buddha's life story is one of the great myths of modern times. In his new book, The Thousand and One Lives of the Buddha, he traces how the life story of the Buddha has been told across cultures, from early Buddhist texts to contemporary art forms of manga and science fiction. In today's episode of Tricycle Talks, I sit down with Bernard to discuss his favorite myths about the Buddha's life, the risks of searching for a historical Buddha, and the creativity of the Buddhist tradition. I'm here with Bernard Four, professor of Japanese religion at Columbia University. Hi, Bernard. It's great to be with you. Hi, James. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk about your new book, The Thousand and One Lives of the Buddha. You write that the life story of the Buddha is one of the great myths of modern times. So first, what do you mean by myth and what can be gained from treating the life of the Buddha as myth as opposed to some historical fact? Yeah, a myth is something you take as a model for actions a set of beliefs you have which you don't necessarily need to prove. This is something that influences your daily life. In the life of the Buddha, there are definitely a lot of things you could call mythical elements, which have to do with this conception of life as was prevalent at that time in India or Asia. And there are other elements which people would say look more like legends. They might have a really historical element behind them, but over time, these elements have been embellished beyond recognition. So many historians would take the second view, right? We talk about the legend of Buddha. And therefore, if it's a legend, we can probably try to find the historical truths behind it. The word myth, on the other hand, if you talk about Indian deities like Rama or Krishna, of course, today, some Indian nationalists are trying to claim that Rama and Krishna were historical figures. Behind every myth, you may have a historical reality. But basically, when you use the word myth, you are not too concerned with that historical reality. The little grain of sand that gave birth to that pearl we call the myth. You sort of point out that there are at least two different approaches to the Buddha's biography, the historical and the hagiographical. Right. So hagiography, you know, sacred history, the life of saints in the Christian tradition from hagio, sacred graphic description, really look at the legend of the saints. Michel de Certo once said, hagiography looks like a history, but it's more like a composition of places. And when you look at the legend of the saints, you realize that places are very important there. And that struck me as being very applicable to the life of a Buddha. The early elements of the myth or legend are really focused, centered around places like stupas, for instance. The monumental aspect, if you like, the memorial aspect and the geographical aspects are very important in hagiography. In history, of course, we deal about events unfolding in time, and we try to understand these events. The problem when you treat hagiography as if it was history is that somehow you try to cure the hagiographical account from its obviously legendary elements, and therefore you assume that behind all that, there will be another reality that will finally be found, right? And that would be the historical Buddha. The problem is you never really reach that historical moment. So you get all the way back to, let's say, Ashoka's time, supposedly 100 years after the historical Buddha lived. But this is about the best you can do. 
it's all well and good, but that doesn't satisfy my historian feeling here. I'm a historian in the sense, right? Historian of religion, but it's still a historian. But historians would think that symbols and legends matter. They are not just extra stuff that you must get rid of. Yeah, in other words, stripping down the Buddha to his historical existence, you're left basically with very little. But you write that historians of this sort end up creating a myth of their own, the myth of a rational, even humanistic Buddha with a simplified chronological life story. What are some of the dangers then of historicism and what can be gained when we're freed from the historical stance? You are left with very little. What can you say about the Buddha? You can really say the whole thing in one paragraph and it's not very inspiring. No traditional Buddhist would recognize himself or herself in that definition. If all you are left with is that sometime in 6th century, 5th century, a man lived named Gautama or Shakyamuni who came to be called later on the Buddha because he was at one point enlightened. He was born a prince. He left his family, went to practice austerities in the jungle or in the mountain and eventually reaches this peak experience, which everyone would like to reach someday. And after that, started teaching, let's say, which became a religion and eventually died at advanced age of 80 or something. This is it. This is five lines or 10 lines, maybe. It's boring as hell and it's generic. You have stripped this story from all its juice of its elements that would compel someone to become a Buddhist. If there has only been that, there would be no Buddhism today. Buddhists would have long been dead because it's just not attractive at all. No, you need something much better than that. A model, a figure that somehow brings some love so that people want to believe him and to follow him and think he has really found the truth. So there's something else. What is this something else which historians have dropped? And you know, in doing so, they have done a disservice to the cause. So we tend to think of a founder nonetheless as somebody who founds a religion, say. On the other side of that, does the religion create the founder then? You do have founders. You do have people who historically recorded in the modern time or in the past, someone like Luther, let's say, Calvin or others, who do found a religion. Muhammad, right, in Islam. Christ is already a little bit more problematic, but we can still go so far, right? But in the case of Buddha, we don't have that. We don't have any record close to the time of where he supposedly lived. What seems to have happened is really that at some point in time in India, there were many groups of religious people, right? And one of them called themselves Buddhist. They looked back to this figure they called the Buddha, and they started really writing about him, telling stories about him. The Buddhist order developed around these stories. Where does the emphasis on the actual or historical existence of the Buddha and piecing together his story, where do you think that impulse is coming from? To say this was the original Buddha, this is what he originally taught, this is the person who went from here to there on foot, this sort of thing. Well, of course, any religion needs a founder. But as Levi-Strauss once said, often this founder is a virtual focus. Like when you see an image reflected in the water, you seem to believe that the source of this image comes from a place that you see inside the water, but it actually comes from a different place. In that sense, Buddha is a virtual focus, a virtual source. Nevertheless, it is real in that sense. Saying it's virtual doesn't mean that there's nothing there. First, on the religious side, people need a founder. They need to somehow believe that there was someone there at the beginning of things. But it doesn't necessarily to be a historical figure, but often that's the case. Then, as Western discourse developed, 17, 18, 19th century, 
this tendency, the historicism, yeah, the historical method became really the dominant form of study in the field of humanities, if you like, philology and history, right? So it became the dominant paradigm. The idea is that through the study of text, you could get back to the author behind the text and therefore to the historical figure who founded this movement. That was a kind of natural development in a sense. There was a reaction to right against the 19th century, of course, and Donald Lopez and others have written about this. This was, of course, the reaction against Christianity and religion perceived as really an obscurantist movement. Now we had a religion which supposedly had a founder who looked very reasonable. He's not walking on water, he's not doing all the crazy things that we're used to. So a religion with a philosopher as a founder, that was very attractive to 19th century scholars for understandable reason. But in doing so, they threw the baby with the bathwater, if I might say. Right. We seem to value literal truth or scientific truth over mythical truths. Obviously, we need both. But in this case, your emphasis has been on the myth of the Buddha because, like you say, that's where the juice is. Is that fair to say? It's a reaction against what I see as the pendulum of his really swung to the other extreme. Historical study is really important. I'm not really denying that. I'm a historian myself. But history is not historicism. Historicism is a tendency to really deny anything that is not purely material or physical, anything that cannot be proved also by documents. And the idea that somehow the more authentic documents should be the simplest one. Because if something is very simple, it means it didn't have time to get elaborated and developed and so on. So we might be closest to the origin. And this is to forget that actually very often a story is going to be embellished with legend and other things through time. But sometimes the just the opposite happens. This is exactly what's happening now with historicism, also with modern Buddhism. We want to simplify the story to make it fit our agenda or our desire. So story can go both ways. It can become more complex or more simple. To think that because you have simple text, and this simple text would be, let's say, the palette, and that would be therefore much closer to the original Buddha, that's again a very strong presupposition. How then would you describe your approach to the life of the Buddha? My approach is that I like stories. I always like stories and religion. I study religion, Japanese religion, Chinese religion, Buddhism in East Asia. It's mostly stories. And sometimes they are not so great, sometimes they are really fascinating. There is a sheer pleasure in reading about their stories. Reading the life of Buddha is a great experience for many people, including myself. So that would be my approach, saying, you know, I don't want to somehow deprive through my scholarly work the readers from that pleasure. And if I find someone who is doing just that, I thought, okay, there's a problem there. So why don't we turn to the life of the Buddha? You identify four key moments in his biography, which you describe as acts in a play. Can you talk about each of these moments? First, the word biography here. I would put quotation marks. The biographical drive is something really that we Westerners have. We want a biography to be, you know, someone is born, goes through life and dies. But this is really not the case in the life of Buddha. And I use the word life with a capital letter to show that it's not just regular life, but legendary or mythical life. Therefore, it's more like a drama that unfolds. The four main moments have been the birth, the awakening. I prefer the word awakening to enlightenment, actually, because enlightenment, which is a common term used in English, means that there is light. And of course, in some tradition, like the Tibetan tradition, it's an experience where light is important. But in most Buddhist tradition, it's more like waking up from slumber, from ignorance. 
So this compared to the dreaming state, and therefore you awaken. You would just wake up, literally. So that was a second moment, of course, and this is like the crucial point. The story could have ended there, because when Gautama awakens, he has reached a higher transcendental level, whatever we call it. So basically, he's no longer there anymore. What goes on is just really the workings of karma, the physical being of a Buddha. But the story didn't end there. The Buddha continued to teach selflessly, we could say, for 50 years or so. And eventually, there was another crucial moment, which is nirvana. Historical, I would say, just death. But basically, for the Buddhists, it's something different. He again enters finally into that higher state. For the Buddhists, there's two forms of nirvana. There's nirvana with remainder, which is what happened at the time of awakening, right? He has reached that state, but because of his past karma, he still goes on living. And then the final nirvana, the great nirvana, pari nirvana, which is really the final exit. After that, he's no longer there. Except that he still remains in one way, which is his relics, which are still seen not as just remainders, but as really another form of presence, which has exactly the same kind of power that the living Buddha had. You mentioned earlier places associated with the Buddha, and you write that the moments you just spoke of are more rooted in place than in time. Can you say more about geography and the legends and pilgrimages associated with these four moments? What do you mean they're more rooted in place than time? Well, what we know is that definitely at some point in early India, there were pilgrimage centers that developed around the stupas where supposedly the relics of the Buddha had been buried. Some of them were just memorials, but most of them really were believed to have some kind of remains, some kind of relic of the Buddha in them. And so they became really important. The religion developed kind of almost piecemeal around the centers. Each center was trying to make a point that it's better than all the others. They develop all these kind of stories. You can see this really happening. So yes, we have this early development of the Buddha's legend or myth in this northern part of India. Then you get stories which say, well, actually, the Buddha went to northeast, to what is now Gandhara, what is now Afghanistan. And then you have a second wave like that where the early Buddhism spread toward the northeast and then also spread toward southern India, to the south, and then eventually spread to Southeast Asia. And again, with stories of relics being exported there. And then, as we know, through China and all the way to Japan. Geographical expansion seems to correspond also to the development of the legend of Buddha. Actually, one of the historians, I like him because of his style, Alfred Fouché, explained that. If the Buddha, after he was awakened, had gone west instead of east in his peregrinations, the whole nature of Buddhism would have changed because he went east where he met local people who were more like vegetarians and all that. So his teaching became what we know, the non-violent and so on. If he had gone the other way, we're talking about a very short distance here, right? I mean, 500 kilometers then probably would have met with more like a warrior type being. His religion would have been much more full of muscle, let's say. Now, of course, that's kind of really very simplistic, reductionistic interpretation. But the point is still that the way the Buddhism expanded geographically did play a role in what became of it. I was wondering if you could say more about the legends that surround the Buddha's birth and his relationship with his mother, Maya, things that you touch on in the book. Yes. So, of course, it's a beautiful, immaculate conception. And here again, the history of religion cannot help noticing some superficial resemblances with some other immaculate conceptions. Here's the story. The Buddha has been living through many, many earlier former lives. He's now in heaven, in Tushita heaven, he's preparing to be reborn. And of course, he has to be reborn in proper setting. So, 
it takes him a long time to find the right person who would become his father and mother. They have to be perfectly virtuous and so on and so forth. And then at first he's conferring with other gods. He's kind of a god, right? He's in heaven at this point. And he's conferring with the other gods, the so-called 33 gods of Indra's paradise. You know, I won't take an animal form to be reborn at first. And it's kind of funny because he's considered animals like a rabbit or things like that. And eventually, on the advice of one of his colleagues, he chooses a white elephant. So you have this famous story where he descends, penetrates Maya's bosom, literally. So Maya has a dream in which this white elephant comes into her and she realizes it's really an auspicious dream. She tells it to her husband the next morning and they say, okay, something's going to happen. Sure enough, she gets pregnant after the dream, right? And not from her husband. They had purified themselves, so there was no doubt about who could be the father. It's a supernatural event. And eventually, after nine months or so, she feels that time has come, so she goes to this park of Lumbini, and then she's going to give birth standing and holding a tree branch. Here again, of course, this element is very mythical. The cult of trees in India is very important. Tree spirits are also important. She gives birth, and right away, two gods, Brahma and Indra, come here to take the child. And the child walks seven steps and declares that he's the ultimate being on earth and under heaven. So, miraculous birth. What is interesting there is that the child, he remembers all his past lives, he's all omniscient, all-knowing. However, as he grows up, he's going to forget about that. He has almost a normal youth, and he's in the palace, he's a prince, and his father has heard that somehow this child is not an ordinary being, so that a diviner told him that he could either become a supreme monarch, a religious leader of mankind. So, of course, the kid wants him to be a monarch, right? Because it's his own kingdom that's at stake here. So he decided that to keep the Buddha protected from any kind of external influence to turn to religion. But, of course, that doesn't work, as we know. At one point, the Buddha goes out of the palace where he has been sequestered and makes four ominous encounters. First meets an old man, and he has never seen an old man before, <laughs> apparently. And then a sick man, and then a corpse. So those are three really encounters and makes him realize life is not as pretty as he thought it was, having been sheltered from all that. And eventually the first encounter, he meets a monk and he realizes that there is a way out of this misery. And therefore he decides to follow the lead to become an ascetic and find the truth for himself. Before the four encounters, the Buddha had totally lost the knowledge he had when he was born about life. He seems to rediscover the basic truths of life, which everyone knows. But then, of course, this wasn't necessary maybe for him so that the shock would be such that he would actually leave the palace, leave his family and become the Buddha. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by the Mindfulness Meditation Podcast, presented by the Rubin Museum of Art, a museum in Chelsea, New York City, that connects visitors to the art and ideas of the Himalayas. Every week, the Rubin presents a live guided meditation session inspired by a different artwork from the museum's collection and led by a prominent meditation teacher from the New York area. The Mindfulness Meditation Podcast is a recording of the weekly practice, which includes an opening talk about an artwork and that session's theme, followed by a 20-minute meditation for beginners and skilled meditators alike. Recent teachers include Sharon Salzberg, Kimberly Brown, and Lama Arya Drolma, to name a few. Find inspiration in the art from the Himalayas, 
Learn to quiet the mind, open the heart, and engage with the world more consciously. Listen to the Mindfulness Meditation Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at rubenmuseum.org. Now let's get back to our conversation with Bernard Four. Another central figure in the Buddha's biography is a very interesting one, Mara, the Demon King. You write that Western biographies of the Buddha often minimize Mara's role or leave him out altogether. Good old Mara, yes. I like this guy. Every good story needs a villain, right? So that's Mara. Historians have ignored him, even though the awakening would not have taken place without the Buddha-to-be first defeating Mara. So Mara is the king of this world, for better or worse. Is really the power that governs and rules over everything there, even over the other gods. And he wants this to continue. He's not attacking the Buddha at first. He first gets dreams that the Buddha sends him, telling him that his time has come. Eventually, he decides, okay, this cannot happen like that. I'm going to confront this young usurper, someone who wants to be the king of this world, literally. As you know, the story, like in any good tale, takes three times, right? You know, you have to knock three times at the door for it to open in most legends. First, Mara sends his army, then he sends his daughters. He has three beautiful daughters to tempt the Buddha, and eventually he himself appears. And when he tries himself to confront the Buddha, telling him, you know, who are you? You are an usurper. I'm the king of this world. And Buddha said, well, you know, I have gained all this merit over huge periods of time. And he takes the earth to witness. Is this famous image, right, where he touched the ground. And the earth goddess appears and to tell, yes, out of this, the earth goddess sends this water and that washes away, drones Mara's armies. This aspect is not really developed in Asian Buddhists, except in uh, Southeast Asia, where you go to any temple in Bangkok, let's say, and you'll see images of the earth goddess torsading her hair and all the waters that she has received from over millions of years of time now flows from her and washes away, drones Mara's armies. That's clearly a very, very mythical story, but it's been left out. It's only after he has defeated Mara that now the Buddha can proceed to the so-called Bodhi tree. Again, the tree is said to be at the center of the world. So it's really a throne, in a sense. And eventually, according to the normal stories, if he had not cleared the way with Mara, he could not have reached the enlightenment he's now going to reach. So the story of awakening has two sides. One side is Mara and the other side is awakening itself. Historians have dropped completely Mara's stories. Mara himself, as I say, is a king of this world. What he wants is life to continue, life with procreation, children being born, life growing and all that. So he's a kind of nature god, as it were. The early Buddha, he thinks the world is a place of suffering. He wants to get out of it. And he wants everyone that he can convert to follow him. So Mara is saying, if I let this guy do what he wants, my world, this world, is going to go to pieces. It's going to just be emptied of its population, literally. So in a sense, Mara is like a good king would try to protect his kingdom from a young aggressor, seen from that point of view. In East Asia, you find this view often well represented. For instance, in Japan, Mara represents the local cults or local people who are feeling threatened by the power of the emperor and the Buddhists who are working together, trying to really extend their control. So Mara takes the side of the oppressed in a sense. So that's a very different view of Mara, but I think it's an interesting one. To quote you here about Mara, you say, without Mara, the Buddha's personality loses all its relief and much of its fascination. This repression of the demon aspects of religion, 
cannot hide the fact that Buddhism cannot be understood without the presence in the shadows of the great tempter, who is at the same time the great awakener. Right. So Mara is a sting in a sense. Like in some version of Christianity, where Judas and the Christ were seen as being two actors in the play. This is a notion that somehow it's a play. The good cop, bad cop, basically. You need a villain, and Mara plays the role of villain. But actually, in some corners at least, we see Mara as working hand in hand with the Buddha to somehow create a good story. So Mara is like an evil twin of the Buddha in that sense. The idea is that somehow the thing we call enlightenment is not just looking at the good side of things. It's encompassing all aspects of reality, including the evil side. So that the Buddha, if he's really the Buddha, encompasses both the good and evil, both Shakyamuni and Mara. And that's really the view that developed later on in Mahayana, the great vehicle. Typically think of Mara as having been defeated. And while many narratives refer to his defeat, you point out that Mara may actually prove victorious in the end. Can you say more about Mara's return just before the Buddha's extinction and entrance into Parinirvana? If Mara had been defeated, we would all be happy. There would be no problem. But obviously, as we know, evil still looms large. He's returning maybe in the form of some political figures we talk about every day now. Who knows, right? But yes, in the Buddha's story, you see him even after the Buddha's awakening, he still returns to haunt the Buddha. He doesn't accept defeat in a sense. After Buddha's nirvana, he returns and often deludes, leads the Buddhist monks into more delusion. He even can take the shape, the form of a Buddha. So the Buddha, if he had really won, he would have converted Mara, but he didn't. So the Buddhists realized later on that there was a problem there that left some job, so someone should have done it. And this is really what my friend John Strong has written about in this very beautiful book on Upagupta, one of the disciples of Buddha, who eventually converts to Buddha, we're told, right? But it's only one story among others. In most stories, Mara remains undefeated and still very active in our world today, supposedly. You also discuss how the life of the Buddha has been presented as a paradigm of Buddhist practice, and that the Buddhist ideal is a kind of imitatio buddhae, like we think here of the imitation of Christ. How does the life story of the Buddha become a model for practitioners? I think maybe that's one of the most interesting aspects of this life of the Buddha, the fact that somehow it served as a template, as a model for later Buddhists. So all these moments we discuss in the life of Buddha became, in a sense, source of rituals. All over Asia, on that day of the birth of the Buddha, you have rituals where the baby Buddha is being washed. In China, in the 4th, 5th century, there were really large-scale rituals with all kinds of automata. The enlightenment of Buddha, of course, is something that you find being rehearsed in every Buddhist temple. What they're trying to do is really imitate the life of Buddha. For instance, when we talk about sitting meditation, Someone like Dogen in Kamakura, Japan, is saying, you know, why do we sit cross-legged? We are simply ritually imitating what the Buddha did. This is the way Buddha sits. This is the best position for a Buddha. So it's not just to say, okay, it's convenient. No, it's really just a ritual imitation. That's why the position is so important. It's a ritual. Today in the West, we can sit on an armchair and meditate. In traditional views, this is not the right meditation. The ordination. It's again a replay of the Buddha leaving the family. In Southeast Asia today, when a kid wants to join the Buddhist order, it's played by his parents. You have some people who play Mara, who try to prevent him. But he goes to the temple, he rides a horse, just like the Buddha did, right? And eventually he cuts his hair, just like the Buddha did, and so on. So all this is being replayed. And of course, then you have a nirvana, as I described in the later Japanese version of a nirvana. 
people who staged their death as a replay of the nirvana. Practically all the events of a Buddha can find some kind of ritual replica. Any Buddhist ritual, for example, is replaying Mara's attack. The first thing a monk does in medieval Japan, in the esoteric Buddhism, for example, Shingon or Tendai, you draw an area of protection. You recite some mantras in order to protect yourself because you are basically going to be attacked by Mara. That's really the ritual before the real ritual, right? It's a preliminary ritual. If you don't do that, you might lose your mind. They do believe that, that somehow you are taking a risk. It's like really going out on the beach and dropping some acid. You don't know if you are going to come back. You need to be protected somehow. The life of Buddha and the story of Mara gave you this kind of protection. So far, we've focused on the biography of the historical Buddha or the story of the Buddha simply. But with the rise of Mahayana, the focus shifts toward metaphysical Buddhas. Can you say more about the development of this transcendental or post-human Buddha? The Buddha is one of the first post-humans. The true human, the perfected human or the post-human. The idea that the Buddha was not an ordinary being came to prevail. The idea that he had died from diarrhea, from indigestion, as some stories tell us. Stories which actually historians saw as, as a proof of his historical figure. They would have expurgated that, but somehow they didn't, and now we know this is really what happened. Of course, it could also have been produced by people who wanted to make the Buddha look more human, more historical. This image of Buddha didn't please people, so they started really saying, oh, okay, it's not a real death. It's like the same thing in some currents of Christianity. Christ didn't really die on the cross. That was just, again, a play stage for the benefit of people. The real Buddha doesn't suffer like that. You know, the real Buddha is no longer subject to karma. You had all these stories where the Buddha, because of his past karma, had to go through nine torments, we are told. Very minor, but still, you don't expect the Buddha to suffer from such human failings. Gradually, the idea of a suprahuman Buddha developed very early on in India. But later on, definitely with the development of Mahayana from the 1st to 5th century of the Common Era, this Buddha was just a manifestation of a higher Buddha. This was a Buddha for our world, but there are many other such Buddhas. And then you start seeing other Buddhas appear like Amitabha or Amida in Japan, the healing Buddha by Sadaguru, and so on and so forth. And then in esoteric Buddhism, now the historical Buddha, let's say, quotation marks, is only the lower manifestation of a power called the Buddha, which has said to have three bodies. There's a very transcendental body, an intermediary body, which is Buddha, as we see in Mahayana, say, and then the physical body, which is then the historical Buddha. That perception increased more and more as Mahayana developed into Vajrayana or esoteric Buddhism. And then we have all kinds of Buddhas, definitely. So now the Buddha is no longer someone who has disappeared from the world in the distant past. He can be always present in our world. He can appear and his manifestation often take the form of what we call bodhisattvas, like Guanyin, Avalokiteshvara in Sanskrit, or Kanon in Japanese, right? Or Manjushri and others. He also continues his existence through relics. You write about the central role that relics played in Buddhism and its spread through Asia. So how did relics figure into the Buddha's posthumous biography or story? And how do they function, as you say, eternally living Buddhas? Right. So that's an interesting topic. We usually associate relics in Christianity with relics of Christ or relics of the cross and things like that. They're supposed to have magical powers. Peter Brown, many years ago, wrote this book on the cult of the saints, showing why people wanted to be buried near the grave of the Christian saints, because they believe that this grave had power because of their remains. 
Same thing in Islam, of course. You have all cult of the saints. So Buddhism was not so different at first. But soon the relic developed into something very strange, you would say. They are seen as definitely the manifestation of a Buddha in a different form. It's not just his remains, but they are still the Buddha in a capsule, as it were, in a nutshell, literally. So these relics then started attracting pilgrims, of course, believers, and so on and so forth. And eventually, the relic became associated with another symbol which is very predominant in Mahayana Buddhism from Tibet to Japan, namely the so-called wish-fulfilling jewel, Shintamani. So we find texts like Dajodulun in attributed to Nagarjuna around 3rd century, maybe, saying clearly that the relics of Buddha are the Shintamani jewel. From there on, then, belief in the relics equal jewel developed, and it really reached its most extreme development in Japan, in medieval Japan. And now we don't really actually need to see real relics anymore. Relics or the jewel become a purely imaginary kind of reality. We're told that some jewel or some relics have been buried in some cave, and this place became important pilgrimage centers. The Shintamani jewel and the relics became, in a sense, seen as symbol of fecundity. The relics are found when you burn a corpse. Not any corpse, right? I mean, my corpse will probably leave no relics at all. But the relics of Buddha first, but also Buddhist saints later on, and this is still very much believed today in East Asia, will leave little bituminous fragments which cannot be destroyed for some reason, harder than diamond, and having magic powers. So these relics then became the symbol of procreation, and fertility, life. They became the source of life. It's what overcomes death, right? This is what is left after death. And it's still alive as it were. It is seen as creating endless life. And this is, for instance, in medieval Japan, became incredibly central. Then you have many Buddhist deities developing around the cult of relics and the cult of a jewel. If you look at Buddhist iconography, from Tibet to Japan, you'll see this jewel everywhere. Of course, the Buddhism itself is called the three jewels, the Buddhist teaching, but the symbols of the jewel and of the relics is incredibly prevalent in most of these Buddhist teachings. The Buddha survives in a different form. The form he took in Europe in the 19th century was what you call the scientific Buddha. Can you say more about the development of this particular myth of the Buddha, particularly through the work of Caroline Reese Davids and Victor Segalin? Don Lopez has this really interesting tongue-in-cheek explanation saying the old Buddha was replaced by a young Buddha. The young Buddha, which we believe to be the same, but is actually a very different kind of being, was born around the mid-19th century with when the first Buddhist texts were translated by Burnouf and others. And this Buddha, we're told, is a rational man. He's a philosopher. He's a kind of British gentleman, really. He has all these qualities that we would attribute to the British gentleman. He knows everything. And he practiced meditation in order to find the truth behind the veil of appearance. So basically, this is what scientists do. And Lopez has really well described this. So from there on, we have this discourse, which, as we know, has taken very modern forms not so long ago with the Dalai Lama, a dialogue between Buddhist and scientist. Interestingly enough, what Lopez shows is that at first, the Buddhism was not seen like that. The main interlocutor of Western science was first seen in Hinduism. But for some reason, Hinduism lost its seat there and was replaced by Buddhism. Buddhism became a scientific religion and the Buddha became a scientific Buddha. And he still is. And he probably has a long life ahead of him. 
He seems to have other manifestations too. For instance, depictions of the Buddha as they continue to evolve and expand into new art forms. And you talk about manga and science fiction in this regard. It's a little bit iconoclastic, maybe, from some people's point of view. But once you admit that somehow the life of Buddha is kind of a construction, it's kind of a story, there's no reason to privilege, therefore, some stories of others. That was my main point in my critique of historicism. The idea that if we are trying to get back to the real Buddha, then we want to get to the earliest text, the simplest text, and therefore that's in India. But if we admit it's essentially a story, then other stories and other places, other cultures might be just as interesting. So the story of the Buddha in Southeast Asia or in China or in Japan or in Korea might just have to tell us as much. And if you continue that line of thought, why limit ourselves to Buddhist texts? At the time, the Buddhists were faithfully, you know, genuinely, but inventing stories. Now, imagination is not the privilege of the Buddhists, right? Everyone can imagine stories. And if there are values conveyed by such stories, then the stories are good. So, for example, even manga, like Buddha by Tezuka Osamu, the Japanese manga writer, gives you a sense of the real values of Buddhism, compassion, and so on and so forth. That is, to me, is much more interesting than a very dry scholarly account of the life of a Buddha as historical reality. Because that kind of literary genre, manga, fiction, science fiction, conveys ideas and values and principles that are really at the heart of Buddhism. So there's no reason to shun them because they are not the truly orthodox, authenticated stories of the Buddhist tradition itself. I guess these stories have been told throughout the history of Buddhism, and that teaches us something about the creativity of the Buddhist tradition, something that you mentioned. Right. Every tradition, of course, is creative, and that's what makes it alive. But Buddhism has definitely been very creative in that respect, and that's what makes it also so appealing to most of the people around the world who call themselves Buddhists. I do find that this is really the main value through literature, through literary genres, and not just the high literature, can really convey really interesting ideas about Buddhism. I mentioned this book by Roger Zelazny, Lord of Light, which puts the life of Buddha in the context of future civilization on a different planet. But the story is still basically the same, and it conveys the same ideas. I'm not comparing the Lotus Sutra to manga or contemporary science fiction. But it is this imaginative explosion. This is a real takeoff from the ground when we read the Lotus Sutra. It's a real Baroque unfolding of this wild imagination. So this has been going on all along. Right, exactly. Throughout the book, you resist easy interpretations or reductions to simple morals. And you write, quote, Is it possible to avoid all reductionism and to preserve the story's disturbing strangeness? Can we simply savor it rather than hasten to interpret it? Can you say more about how you came to savor these stories and linger in their ambiguity and mystery? First, I don't think it's possible really to avoid reductionism. I don't claim to be like the objective scholar that finally comes with the truth about this. At least I don't take this as being the ultimate. And I do like to read a good story. Buddhist has a lot of good stories to tell. Many stories that I don't find so interesting in Buddhism are those that are usually put forward by scholars. They have this moralistic tone, right? They are didactic. And the Buddha often end up being so boringly didactic. But sometimes you find there's something else going on there. And the stories, you don't really know why it attracts you. And Lotus Sutra is a good example. On the face of it, the stories are rather ridiculous. 
you have the Buddha coming to a place, there's a stupa come out like a rocket from the earth, and the door opens, and another Buddha, Prabhutaratna, is waiting in it, and the Buddha gets in it, and then they take off for outer space. What is this, you know? Is this some kind of science fiction story? But for some reason, these stories worked, and they have worked for centuries. So that's enough for me. As a historian, I want to understand what made people really find this interesting. And now, because we have become so smart and rational and westernized, we have a hard time to understand that. I think the first step towards some kind of awakening would be to try to understand what people of the past have felt like and seen or read in their stories. And the first thing to do that is to somehow get non-judgmental, maybe, just to take the story at face value. Bernard Ford, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of Bernard's book, The Thousand and One Lives of the Buddha. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Tricycle Talks with Bernard Four. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep up with the show, you can follow Tricycle Talks wherever you listen to podcasts. Tricycle Talks is produced by As It Should Be Productions and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.